Matthew 27 is where we'll be this morning. Matthew 27. And that's the only place I'm going to have you mark. Um, this, the accounts we're going to read this morning are recorded in all four of the Gospels. The story of Joseph of Arimathea. And of course the story of the resurrection is, is uh, accounted for in all of the Gospels. So the other thing you need to recognize is that each Gospel writer contributes a portion of the picture of the whole story. So we'll read in Matthew, but recognize that when you read Mark, there's a few other details that Mark includes that maybe Matthew doesn't. And Luke records some other details. And so we kind of piece all these things together to try to get the entire picture. And so I'll do a little bit of that this morning with Joseph of Arimathea. But please take the chance to go and and, uh, when you get home, maybe tonight, Just go into the other Gospels and read the same section and you'll see how different people with different perspectives, how they they include different details of the story that were meaningful to them. I mean, if we all witnessed the same incident, we might all have noticed different things depending on what we were in tune to or what we were looking at. So that's how the Gospels function together to really create a, a, a larger picture of exactly what was happening in each of these events. So... Hopefully we're all in Matthew 27 now. We'll, we'll start in Matthew 27 and head into Matthew 28. Next week we'll uh, finish Matthew 28, which is, completes the, our study for the last two years, roughly, in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm still praying about where to go next. Man, I just am praying about where to go from here. So, lots of choices. 66 choices to be exact, so... All right, let's pray. Father, as we come uh, again this morning, here we are, Lord, just some of us excited to be here, others wondering how they got here, wondering why they're here in this school building, listening to these things that they maybe still don't even believe. And Lord, I pray that you touch each soul that's here each heart that has come lord that you would sneak up on those that weren't expecting to meet you here that were expecting some sort of religious gathering lord i pray that you'd pour out your spirit today that you'd pour out your spirit on one two three four souls that don't know you and father those that do we ask for just a a fresh filling of your spirit just something new lord lord our lives uh, just get uh, into ruts and and we fall into regularity and we become uh, numb and and cold lord and and going through the motions and lord i pray that that you would snap us out of that that you would give us an appreciation today from your word for this the gift that every day is and that you, your, your mercies would be new every morning and that your, your, your goodness would be fresh to us today. And that you would give us just what we need, Lord, our daily bread to get us through one more day on earth. So Father, fill us, teach us, groom us, train us, fill us, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Um, I was in line at the bank. This is by way of introduction. I was in line at the bank the other day, um, and I was, you know, they have the TV on behind the tellers, and I was watching. There's no, no sound, but I was watching the, the news stories. I don't often, you know, I catch the news uh, on, the, on the computer sometimes, but I don't watch a whole lot of the news. Um, I just tend to get mad or discouraged when I do. So I, I tend not to watch a lot of news. But something struck me as I was watching the news I found out they're still searching for the body of Jimmy Hoffa. Did you see that? I thought, my goodness, I know I remember that from when I was a kid, still searching for his body. So it turns out, you know, some of you may know, some of you don't know, Jimmy Hoffa was the head of the Teamsters Union, and he disappeared 37 years ago, and nobody really knows what happened. Some, there's all kinds of theories on what happened, where he was buried here, buried there. He had mob connections and so nobody really knows. Some say he just ran off to South America. Um, but so every time there's a new tip, 
the uh, police and investigators try to go and follow that tip and see if finally they can bring closure to this story, this mystery, really, of where is the body of Jimmy Hoffa, because the body is evidence. And finally, they say, okay, we know what happened. And it's, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to figure out where I'm going with this. As we look in Matthew 27, we have left Jesus, uh, his body limp, dead, hanging on the cross. His disciples have abandoned him. There are few followers there at the foot of the cross. Um, his mother is there. John, the disciple, is there. And um, so that's where we, we sort of left Jesus. And we're introduced to a, a new person that we haven't met before. I say he's been kind of hiding in plain sight. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. And we'll learn about him as we go uh, through today's study. He is kind of a prime, uh, prime player in this next section that leads up to Jesus' resurrection, which is the thing we all put our faith in, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to begin looking at that today as well. So verse 57 of chapter 27 of the Gospel of Matthew says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So Matthew, I think, as we begin to look at this next section, I think one of the things Matthew wants to do for us is to make sure we keep our eyes on where the body is. Because the body is evidence. And there are all kinds of theories, which I'm not going to take the time to expand on. Many of you know there's the theory that Jesus swooned, he didn't really die, and he you know, somehow in his beaten and crucified state and was able to push the stone away and uh, there's theories that they went to the wrong tomb and, and Matthew is going to great lengths to make sure that we see where the body is because with Jimmy Hoffa no one was there it was well I mean someone was there it was a very secretive kind of uh, event Jesus's crucifixion was very very public and and when he is buried uh, we know where he is we know where he's buried unlike Jimmy Hoffa, where nobody knows where he is. So keep your eyes, Matthew says, on where the body is because the body is the evidence. So we see Joseph of Arimathea right off the bat. Matthew tells us something about him. What do we learn about him right away? That he was rich. He was rich. Why does Matthew take the time to mention that? Matthew, too, was probably rich. But it's going to take uh, some means uh, Poor people in that time, in that day and age, didn't have their, their own tombs hewn out of rock like, like uh, Joseph of Arimathea does. They don't have the, the means to provide all of the spices and, and things that they would need for embalming or for the burial. So Joseph is a rich man. Now, how many of you remember back when Jesus was speaking about how hard it was for a rich man to get into heaven? Remember that? So we realized that Joseph, and in my Bible, I wrote next to Joseph an exceptional man. I think Joseph is an exceptional man. One of, the reasons he's an ex- one of the reasons he is so exceptional is because he is a rich man that, that was able to become a disciple. Not able because it's too hard, but able because sometimes riches get in the way. And we can trust in riches. And we can begin to have all of our needs met by our riches. And you remember the rich young ruler who went, went away sad. He, he wasn't able to commit his life. Well, Joseph had committed his life to being a follower. The Bible tells us he was a disciple of Jesus. Not here. One of the other gospel writers tells us he was a disciple of Jesus and he was rich. So he's exceptional because he is, it doesn't mean just because you're rich, it doesn't mean that every rich person has difficulty following Christ. Now the other interesting thing about Joseph of Arimathea, it's not written here, but he was a disciple. I think it's Luke that says, but secretly, 
for fear of the Jews. Uh, now, let me add one more point to that. He was also um, a council member. It'd be like being a member of the Board of Supervisors, except it's called the Sanhedrin. It was the, the, rule, the Board of Supervisors for the Jews. And he was a member of that, not only a member of that group, but a prominent member of that group. So he's a wealthy man. He's a prominent member of the Board of Supervisors for the Jews. And he uh, was exceptional also because out of that group who crucified him, or well, who, who condemned him to death because of envy, he was a follower of Jesus in the midst of that group. And even though it was secret, he was afraid of, of what people might say, of what it might cost him if the others knew that he was a disciple of Jesus. So he sort of kept it to himself until today. He was a secret disciple. But today, he comes out and, and he lets his faith, he lets his identity be known as he identifies himself with Christ. So these are some of the things we know uh, about Joseph of Arimathea. Now, on the council, remember the council is the one that condemned Jesus to death. We also learn, as if I'm just piling up things to build the character of Joseph of Arimathea, when they were all voting to put Jesus to death, Joseph said, I can't, do, I can't vote that way. I'm not going to vote for that. So it says he was not consenting to Jesus' death. The whole group he was part of, the committee he was on, was all in agreement to do something. To crucify or to condemn Jesus, I should say. And he said, I can't, I'm going to have to abstain. I can't vote that way. And I can imagine the conversation that ensued among, between him and the others. Now, some say he, maybe he wasn't at the meeting because it was this late night meeting or early morning meeting. Maybe he wasn't invited to that and so he didn't consent. But maybe he was. Maybe he said, come on, guys, I don't think this is right. The Bible tells us he was a good and just man. And a good and just man can't stand up at, for when, when a committee or a group is doing the wrong thing. You ever been in that position, Christian? You ever been where there's a group of people and they're planning and plotting to do something that's wrong? And how easy it is to just go with the crowd and how easy it is to deny your own personal conviction? You ever been in a place where you've had to, to just deny your own personal convictions for the sake of fearing what people would think if you didn't? Being, that pressure stinks, doesn't it? I hate that pressure. Man, it's so hard to stand up for, for what is right even when other people are doing what's wrong. And this is why I say Joseph of Arimathea was an exceptional man because everyone was voting for and he was voting against crucifying Jesus. So a couple of things that we notice about him. Well, let, let's read a little bit farther again. Uh, verse 58. So we know he's a disciple. Um, we know he was um, a secret disciple, which also could mean that he was hiding for fear of the Jews. All the disciples were hiding. He may have gone into hiding temporarily. Verse 58 says, This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, I think Matthew wants us to go, Wow. This man. I think Matthew writes, says, This man. Like, can you imagine? This man went to Pilate, the governor of Rome, and asked for the body of Jesus. Now that is, is astounding. Another gospel tells us that he had to take courage to do it. It was a risky thing that he did. He took a risk to go and ask for the body. Because now there was going to be no more secret about his identity and, and, and his relationship with Christ or his being a follower of Christ. He was going to have to come out and be bold. And that took courage. And so another reason I think Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea is an exceptional man is because of his faith, he did something that was risky. And I think one of the greatest sins of the church, you know, at large, especially, again, in America, is we want to be safe. We want to be secure. We don't want to take risks. And when you follow Christ, sometimes you've got to take a risk. When is the last time? You see, if it's not a risk, if it's, if it's calculated, if it's easy, if it's secure, it's not faith. And so sometimes God calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. And sometimes we don't know how this is going to turn out. And sometimes we have to take 
and do something that's risky for the sake of Christ. And so I ask again, when's the last time you can say in your life, that took faith? I mean, it can be walking, for some of you, it could be just walking to your neighbor's house and, and you know, being there for them when they're going through a hard time. It can be any number of things, and it could be different for each one of us. But I began to think about this for my, when's the last time I did something, you know, that really was risky, that really took faith, was more than just, you know, everything was planned out, everything was plotted out. Now, I'm not saying, you know, uh, to be stupid. I'm not, I'm not saying to, to do something without the leading of God, without his word uh, encouraging you significantly in that. But don't you think that, that, am I wrong in what I'm saying? Am I wrong in that as Christians, we, we live our very safe lives? I mean, I was reading the book Kisses from Katie and about this girl that goes to Uganda and, and starts schools. And that's risky as a college student to say, you know what, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to drop out of college and I'm going to go and minister in Uganda. And we'll see where it goes. And I mean, over and over, uh, we can talk about things, you know, we went through that in, in the planting of this church. Horseshoers don't plant churches, and so it was risky. You know, I remember looking at Helga saying, we don't know where this thing is going to go. Are we ready to walk away from our home and farm if need be? If we can't, you know, make a living uh, as we are now, are we ready to give up whatever it takes to do what God is calling us to do? You know, I remember going through that and still trying to press ourselves to walk by faith and not by sight. So Joseph is exceptional for, for that reason, and I want to challenge this group to think about what it means to really walk by faith. And I'm going to add one more thing, and then we'll talk about Hebrews 11. The other reason I like Joseph of Arimathea is because he acted alone. He acted alone. Sometimes we can take risks when there's other people taking risks with us. Uh, We have a little more confidence when we're all risking together, because then if I fall, you fall, and I don't feel so bad. I don't feel like such an idiot, you know, if it doesn't work out, because we're all in this together. But Joseph... He acted alone. You know, now, I appreciate this because he was part of a committee. And although the committee didn't agree with him, and he, nor he with the committee, he didn't go home to Mrs. Mrs. of Arimathea and say, well, all the guys, you know, they all felt we, we should condemn Jesus. You know, I didn't agree, but you know, well, I did what I could. I tried to stand up for what was right. You know, I, I guess I did the best I could. Joseph knew a really, really important secret. That's not a secret. It's something that you and I need to understand that that you are not bound to operate by committees. You can do something yourself, even if no one else is doing it. We have that committee mentality in church. We got committees for everything in church. And so we'll argue and and try to get the committee to do what we think is right or try to get the committee to go this direction or the committee to go that direction or the church, you know, oh, the elders don't agree with me. I think we should do missions here. I think we should do ministry there. But, well, the elders, they don't agree with me. So now I'm just going to get mad at the elders. Go and do the ministry God is calling you. Don't wait for the committee to agree with you. If you're called to do it, if God is moving you for, with compassion for the body of Christ, I love this about Joseph of Arimathea because he is showing compassion for the body of Christ and care for the body of Christ. And if God is calling you in some way to show care for the body of Christ, please don't wait for a team. You know, And this is what happens if you read the Gospel of John Maybe you have. Do you know who joins him once he's made the step to, to go get the body of Jesus? Does anybody, has anybody read that? Nicodemus. So he leads. Joseph says, I, got, I don't care what the committee says. I don't care. The disciples had all, all the other disciples had scattered. And he said, you know, I've got to do this myself. And it would be impossible for him himself to get the body of Jesus off the cross. And I don't think he's thinking about how this is. I'm, I don't know how it's going to work. I just know I have to go and and take care of his body. I have to give him this honor. He was so dishonored and so humiliated. And what a humiliating thing it would have been for Joseph of Arimathea, this rich man, to be associated with this criminal and vagabond who was so sorely mistreated and he was a joke. And so he acted alone and he was willing, another reason, I mean, so many reasons, there's a thousand things we learn from Joseph of Arimathea 
Another thing I love about them is, you know what, sometimes people are, uh, think the body of Christ is a joke, don't they? People think the body of Christ, you know, you go to work and people, you know, at church, you know, who needs it? What's the big deal? You know, you guys are following a lie or whatever they might say. And, and sometimes they think it's a joke because of all the abuses that we've seen in the body of Christ. And it's a lot of people that think the body of Christ is a joke. And Joseph says, I don't care what people think. I am going to show him the honor that's due him for who he is. And so willing to, to be identified with Christ. You know, are you willing to be identified with the body of Christ? Even, you know, because sometimes we think, well, we'll just, I'll show up at church on Sunday, but nobody else knows that kind of that I go there. I'm going to keep it, keep it secret, keep it quiet. Again, just reasons. I, I think there's exceptional people in the body of Christ today. I think there's exceptional people like, like Joseph of Arimathea. I want to be an exceptional person. I want to, I learn, I, I see what, this is recorded in all four Gospels for us to read. So he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus, verse 58 says. Now, typically, the Romans would, would just leave the bodies on the crosses. And the birds would eat them. They'd decompose there in a few days, a little bit longer. And that was the added humiliation of crucifixion. But the Jews had a law that said if, you, if someone was hung on a tree, uh, they could not be left there overnight, especially during the Sabbath, especially if the Sabbath was coming up, which is what was coming up. So they had to get those bodies down because it would defile the, the land the, and the ceremonial cleanliness for the Jews. So they, it was a big thing to them. And so the, the Romans would allow either a close relative or a friend to come and, and take the body. And so some suggest maybe Joseph of Arimathea was actually a relative of Mary's. And I can't say that biblically, but that's speculation. Um, but either way, he comes and he takes courage. He asks for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. So verse 59 says, when Joseph had taken the body, that right there is just packed with, you know, we could just read that one little sentence, but think about what it would be like for Joseph to have to go and get Jesus's body off the cross, torn and brutalized, and he had been pierced in his side with a spear by the Roman soldier and um, the crown of, of thorns having dug into his head, his beard having been ripped out, all of these things, his back brutalized. And now he's hung up on the cross. They would have to pull down that crossbar and lay it on the ground, and then they'd have to pull out the spikes, the spikes in his hands. They'd have to untie his arms. They'd have to pull out the spikes in his feet. And I just, was he crying? I mean, was he, was he or was he so numb because of the, the shock of the situation that he wasn't able to cry? I don't know, but I don't want you to miss the human factor as we read. Now, it's a good thing Nicodemus went because I don't think Joseph could have done that himself. The cross beam itself weighs 80 pounds. And then to, to bring that body, you know, the, the dead weight, so to speak, of, of Jesus' body and to lay that on the ground. I mean, it's packed with a lot more than we just read right here. So we have to read between the lines sometimes. So Nicodemus and Joseph get the body of Jesus down. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. So they, um, Nicodemus again has joined him. Nicodemus has brought the burial spices. Uh, they would typically wrap the body in, in sheets of, of linen and then between the linen sheets, they would put herbs and spices to um, mask the smell of the body decomposing. And then they would put it in the tomb. And the tombs were hewn, typically either a natural cave or, or hewn out of rock. And Joseph had, um, had had this done. He was a wealthy man. This was his tomb that he had put aside for his own burial and that of his family. See, they shared tombs. It's not like we do in, in our country that your, your, uh, the deceased would be put in the tomb, wrapped in the linen, and then eventually the body would decompose. Then they would come and put the bones that were remaining in a, a box called an ossuary box, and then the tomb was free then for the next body to be laid in the tomb. And that's how they, they did things. And Joseph, 
You know, some people joke that uh, it was not a really big sacrifice for Joseph because he knew he'd only need it for the weekend. But uh, that's another that's another story. So he takes he takes the body, they wrap it up, they lay it in. It's a new tomb, so there's going to be no confusion again about well, which body was Jesus's. It's important. It's an important fact that it was a new tomb. No other bodies were in it. No, no, nothing else to be confusing there. It had never been. No bodies had had been put in it. And then he rolls the stone. That would have been typical to roll. The, the way you sealed the tomb was there was a round stone that would roll down a little channel and in front of it this is a you know this is a pretty heavy stone and it would roll in front of the channel and in front of the door uh to the tomb it'd take multiple people to to roll that thing uh away because it would be rolling uphill to get it away now those of us that were in israel saw that there are there's a site that's now within the walls of jerusalem called the uh, church of the holy sepulcher which which for years the traditional site where jesus was uh, buried. We visit when we go to Israel what's called Gordon's Calvary, which is a place that uh, a, a British general named General Gordon had seen this rocky uh, um, hillside that resembled, remember Calvary means skull, as does Golgotha. And he'd, he'd noticed this place where there was this, the, the side of the cliff looked like a skull, two eyes, a little nose, and then a mouth, which has now been, been uh, covered up mostly through years of sediment. But you can still see when we go visit there, you can still see the eyes and, and the nose. And, and real close to that, I mean, it was a lot closer than I expected, was the tomb. Was sometimes we picture these things as far away, but they're really close to each other. And actually, um, John tells us that the tomb was in a garden. And so they discovered this tomb in a garden. And, and it doesn't mean like your vegetable garden. It means like a a um, horticultural garden and it was in a vineyard they found a wine press there and that it's there's a great great deal of evidence to suggest that there is a highly likely i can't say for certain uh, no one can say for certain but it's highly likely that this is the actual burial place of jesus christ and it's called again gordon's calvary now uh, one of the ways we know that it's it's quite possible highly likely that it's the burial place because when you go in there it's empty. And that's the beautiful thing. It's empty. The body's not there. And when we read, there's a, there's a sign on the door that says he is risen. And it's just an awesome, awesome place, the most holy place you can visit. Because if the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't the real deal, then, then it changes everything we believe, doesn't it? It changes everything we believe. So the body is put there. In the, the stone is rolled. They, they know right where it was, and there's witnesses to it. Verse 61 says Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary. Wouldn't you like to be called the other Mary? This is Mary Magdalene, and this is the other Mary. Well, thanks a lot, you know, the other Mary. And then there was more Marys than that. It was a very lot of Marys. And they were sitting opposite the tomb. So they were watching uh, as this took place again, probably grieving and mourning and and so they know exactly where he's buried and and when that stone rolls away you know I, I get to be you know participate in in more funerals than the average person because of being a pastor and so and there's this there's this part of me that when you know oftentimes at the graveside you know we have the graveside ceremony and then everybody leaves while the casket is still there above ground and on occasion I'll stay and I'll wait and I'll watch, and I know, you know, I know many of you, probably all of us, have, have had loved ones uh, die and, and, and go through those funeral things. And so you understand what it's like to be at a funeral and to go through a funeral. And, and, when, and I watch as that, as that um, casket is lowered into the ground, and it's so, it seems so final. It seems like closure, you know, and, and, and that's where we feel that sting of death. And so this is how they're feeling. It's it, Mary, the disciples, Joseph. I mean, none of them are expecting, this is final. This is closure for them. It's done. It's over. Now, on the next day, well, we'll pick that up in chapter 28 here. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, 
the day of preparation is the Friday. They, would have, they couldn't do work on the Sabbath, so on Friday they would have to get everything ready. So that's what they did, the day of preparation. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver or that vagabond said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Only Matthew records this. Matthew, because of his position as a tax collector, has some inside information that the other gospel writers uh, did not have or did not include in their gospels. How does Matthew come by this information? Because it's a conversation between Pilate and the chief priests. Evidently, Matthew knew someone who was one of those chief priests um, that went to uh, Pilate. It's a busy day for Pilate. He's got a lot, of, a lot of visits going, a lot of requests made of him. And so they come, they say, listen, we remember while he was alive, this liar, this deceiver, well, he said he was going to rise again the third day. And here's what we're afraid of. We're afraid that the disciples might come and steal the body and deceive everybody again. You know, the first deception was that he was the Messiah. I mean, now we know that's not true. So now they could make it even worse by then deceiving people by saying he's risen from the dead. They would steal the body and then say, oh, look, he's gone. He's risen from the dead. We want to make sure that doesn't happen. We want to finish off this, this Jesus thing. We want this to just go away. So Pilate, what we're asking you to do is can we set a guard at the tomb? And, and what, 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 what they didn't understand what's happening is it's just more eyewitnesses. More eyewitnesses are going to be um, there to see that he's not there. So that's what they're asking. That's what they're worried about. Interesting that the disciples, I think the farthest thing from their mind, don't you, was Jesus rising from the dead. I mean, they've scattered. You don't embalm someone that's going to be rising from the dead in three days. Nobody was, the disciples were not expecting him to rise from the dead. They thought they'd followed a, a dream. They thought they'd followed a hope that had just ended. But the, the, the Pharisees, they want to make sure. They want to make sure nothing happens. We don't want to get sloppy now. We want to make sure this is, we see this thing through. So Pilate, verse 65, said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard there's a lot of debate whether that, this was the temple guard or this was the Roman guard. I think most people agree that this would be the, the Roman guard. It was, so when Pilate says, you have a guard, meaning I'm going to give you a guard, a cohort of Roman soldiers that, whose job it would be to guard the tomb of a dead man. That's interesting. Um, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. It's almost like Pilate is saying, like, Good luck, <laughs> no matter how secure you make it. I wonder if this has something to do with Mrs. Pilate's dream. You know, maybe Pilate kind of knew or kind of had a suspicion that maybe this guy was who he said he was and maybe he was going to do what he said. So he says to the Romans, to the Jews, you're going to have a guard. Go ahead, take him and, you know, take him to the, to the place he was buried and make it as secure as you can. Go ahead, give it your best shot because you ain't going to hold him in. Now, what would it mean to make the tomb secure and set the guard? This means that the, the stone had been rolled over the door of the tomb. They would put a rope that would stretch across the stone. And on each side, it was attached to the cliff with a, a large glob of melted wax. And then the Roman uh, insignia was stamped into it on each side. So if you moved that stone, you would break the seal and you would die. If you broke that seal... It carries the authority of the Roman government, and the, the penalty of that would have been death. So they seal it, but not only do they seal it, then they put a guard down. Now, the guard would have been, you know, something around 16 Roman soldiers. Whose, they, were, they were top-notch soldiers, not, you know, not like the soldiers they see in the movies that are always getting beaten up by the good guys. You know, they always picture these, these soldiers and the guard as, like, really, you know, dodos. They just never seem to be able to get anything right. Not these guys. These are like Navy SEALs. These are Delta Force guys guarding the tomb. If they fell asleep on their watch, the whole cohort would be put to death. 
And they would be, they, if they found you uh, sleeping, they would light your clothes on fire. And that's how they would kill you if you were asleep. So you did not, there was a Starbucks close by. You went, you got your coffee because you had to stay awake. And each soldier was responsible for guarding a six-foot square piece of land in front of that tomb. So 16 guys, each guarding a six-foot square piece of property, making sure nobody came in. No disciples coming in. Nobody's coming in. Nobody's getting near under penalty of death. These guys were good. So they secure it. Now, chapter 28, verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And they had to wait it out over the Sabbath. The Sabbath day, they couldn't uh, do any work. They couldn't do, travel more than a certain distance so they had, been, uh, they had prepared and purchased these spices. They were going to come and do for Jesus what Mary had done before his burial, anointing him with the spike nard. She did it while she had the opportunity. She's the only one that got to anoint him while he was still alive. By the way, by the way, Joseph of Arimathea, these, these women, I wonder if Joseph ever had any guilt over not, you know, now that Jesus has been crucified and died and is being buried, I wonder if he ever had any guilt about not coming out with being a disciple while Jesus was still alive. And I wonder if the women now were regretting, you know, maybe have not being able to do for Jesus what they wanted to do while he was alive. And let me say to this to you, you know, again, we go back to funerals, and, and I want to say that there, there's some beautiful things said at funerals. There's some beautiful things done and said and spoken about people's lives after they've died. Can I say to you, don't wait. Don't wait. You tell people that you love today that you love them. You, you minister to, you know, today we're, we're angry, we're upset, we're, we're arguing about this, we're arguing about that. There are no guarantees for tomorrow. And I, I just don't want to see you have to, have to, to go through that. When, when what needs to be said needs to be said today. So it may be that someone in this room needs to go home today and say to their spouse or to their kids or kids saying to their parents, you know what, it's not worth it what we're fighting over. I want you to know how much I appreciate you. I want you to know how much I love you. I want you to know how, much, how thankful I am for you. Let people know it while they're alive. You know, I want you to, you know, to take care of those things now. You can tell me, you know, hey, we love this church. Love Steve, you're a great pastor. You can tell me before I'm dead, okay? You know? Don't wait. I told I was, Frank and I were joking the other day. I said, you know, just if, if, if I die before Frank, uh, he's going to just grill me at my funeral. I know it. We have so many stories together, so much, ex- so much life experience, and just so much um, that we have shared and I told him, you better hope I die first, because I got a lot on you too. So Mary comes to the tomb, and behold, verse 2 says, there was a great earthquake. Now an aftershock from the previous earthquake, no doubt, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. Angels are evidently pretty strong. And sat on it. This is great. I mean, he, he rolls back the stone and then he props himself on it. Like, ta-da, you know. His, his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. No, no doubting who he was. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. These were serious soldiers. And, and there are those that say, well, when Mary went, she went to the wrong tomb. That means the angel went to the wrong tomb. And that means the Romans were guarding the wrong tomb. So there's a lot of these theories that are really kind of silly. So they roll the stone away so that, you, know, you guys know this, not so that Jesus could get out. He's already gone. The stone wasn't going to keep him in. He rolls the stone away so that the people, Mary and the disciples, they come, Peter and John come running eventually so that they can get in and see that Jesus, his body is not there. And we believe, folks, we believe not just a resurrection of the spirit. 
We don't believe that just we're just going to be resurrected in spirit. We believe in a bodily resurrection. We believe that we are not going to just be disembodied spirits floating around in heaven. We believe we are going to have physical bodies. Where, how can you believe that, Steve? Where's the proof? It's right here. The body was gone. So he rolls away the stone, and, and the, the guards, for fear of him, they were, so, they were so afraid, they became like they were just frozen, just like, wow, just completely couldn't even move. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Happy Easter, folks. He is risen. Oh, this is not, this is, yeah. I know it's not Easter, so we got you messed up. Let's try that again. He is risen. Okay, well, let's try that again. Some of you know what to say. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And again, oh, what a fantastic promise. What a fantastic truth that that stone, when it rolled, we were looking at Mary and Joseph and Nicodemus and the other Mary and the closure and the finality. And guess what? Death is not final. Amen. This is where we get our hope. This is why as Christians we sorrow, but not as those without hope. Because we believe that death is not final. Amen. You can choose to believe what you want. I'm going with the Bible. Amen. I'm going with a risen Savior. Peter would go on to say, we have this, we have a, we're begotten again into a living hope. To a living hope. And the angel says, don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. And he, and he says, come, see the place where the Lord lay. Hey, and we invite people, come and see. Come and see what a, that, that he's not, in, he's alive. Come to church. Do people come to this church and see a risen Savior? Or do they see a bunch of people still stuck in the crucifixion? Got to go to church. That's, I'm, it's killing me. Got to get there. Got to get up. Gotta, you know, oh, church is just killing me being a Christian. Or do they see people that are celebrating uh, risen lives, celebrating new life, that we have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless we, nevertheless, we live. We live. This is the great promise. This is the great hope. This is the great truth of my life. Take it out of the Bible pages. This is the truth of my life. There was a day when Steve Fedden died and was born again. And I became a new creation at that point. And that is, the, that is a miracle as great as any other miracle. I'm getting ready in a couple of, of months, December, a bunch of guys that I was on a rowing team with in college. I was on the rowing team, my roommate and my other roommate and, and a bunch of other guys. I haven't seen those guys in 20 years. And, and we're getting together for a little reunion. Um, a bunch of old guys getting in a boat and going to try to row it again 20 years later. And, you know, I'm kind of nervous about it because I haven't seen these guys in 20 years. And Pastor Steve didn't exist at LaSalle University in 1990, 1989, um, when I was in college, the guy that they're going to meet, and I haven't talked, I've talked to one of the guys, I haven't talked to most of them in 20 years, and they're going to remember the old me. And so I'm having to prepare myself for the jokes. I'm having to prepare myself for the astonishment um, of, of, and their responses, because I was not a real upstanding guy in college. I know you have a hard time believing that, uh, but it's true, if you knew me then, you would say, what a work God has done in this man's life. And, you know, but if we knew you then, right, if we knew you then, we would say, what a work God has done in this person's life. Amen. And then the final note I want to make, the angel says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. The angel doesn't say, you know, go tell the disciples, too bad. You blew it. 
God is done with you. Don't you wish you had believed it? But now it's too late. And so as we close our Bibles and we, we set our sights on um, the passage for next week as Jesus meets his disciples on the way, and you know, it's not too late. I appreciate that, you know, they didn't understand everything Jesus said. Because you know what? I don't understand everything Jesus says. I thank God that I'm not saved by my understanding. You know, we celebrate communion. We celebrate baptism. I'm sure we miss the fullness of these things because God is way more than we can comprehend. Amen? And there may be someone that, that thinks that God is done with them, that, that you know, you, you don't understand everything, you've walked away from Christ because you didn't understand. And maybe today, God is saying, go and remind them, go and tell them that I want to meet with them. I want to meet with them. Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, not a religion, not a cold book of of history and mythology. I want to offer you a meeting with the risen Christ. If you don't meet with Him, if you don't know Him, then you will live a substandard Christian life. You will always be stuck in the crucifixion. And never live in the newness of life that we're promised in the Bible. You'll always be stuck in the fellowship of suffering. Never knowing, and that's part of it, but never knowing the power of the resurrection. That same power that that raised Jesus from the dead can be and should be at work in your life. I was riding my bike yesterday and I go to the, the gas station and a guy asked me, could I buy him a beer? You know, he's just... Saw that I, you know, I'd bought a Gatorade for myself, and and uh, it was in Charlottesville. And um, as I came out, he saw I had money, and you know, so I said, "Hey, I, I need, I need some. Can you give me some money?" I said, "Well, usually I don't give just money unless I know somebody, you know. So, you know, what do you need? Well, I need some cold medicine, which, of course, I think what he wanted was the alcoholic content in the cold medicine. I said, "Well, do they have cold medicine here? I'll get you some cold medicine." Well, what I really, really need is a beer. You see, I'm alcoholic, and you know what? I, I need a beer. Can you buy me a Bud Ice? And man, I thought on one hand, I want to minister to this guy. I want to help him out. You know, I want to show him Christ's love. But I said, man, I can't buy you a a Bud Ice. You know, I, I've gotten in trouble for that one time already. So I was helping someone get some. Uh, uh, I was at E. W. Thomas. This, can, you're going to have to follow me this morning, okay? I know, I'm challenging you mentally. Was it E.W. Thomas and a, and a guy who was uh, vertically challenged uh, couldn't reach the, the beer he wanted on the top shelf, and so he said, excuse me, sir, would you just get that down for me? And I wasn't thick. I said, sure, I'm Mr. Kindness, you know. I just want to, hey, I'll help you out. And so I get this down, and I'm holding it, and I hear it feel a tap on my shoulder, and there's Aline with her, her cell phone. Click, click, you know, there I am with so I'm looking around for Aline, you know, at the gas station, wondering if I buy this guy a beer, you know. But just began to share with him, look, I'm a pastor, and, and what you need is not another beer. What you need is freedom. Because if you were going to commit suicide, I wouldn't buy you bullets. And so what you need is freedom. And I want to invite you to know Jesus Christ and and he didn't, uh, he, he wasn't ready for that. He, he understood that he'd have um, a, a lot to go through negatively before he could uh, understand and, and before he could accept Christ because he'd have to go through coming off, you know, alcohol, going through the DTs and all that stuff. Um, and he wasn't willing to face that pain for the future promise. And so again, maybe, you know, maybe there's some pain that, that some un, so an unsaved soul in here has to face. The pain of repentance can be painful sometimes, can it? The pain of confessing your guilt, the pain of, you know, confessing your wrongs to those around you, to those that you are close to, the pain of, of giving up that past life so that you can embrace the new one, which is always better, isn't it? 
That's what you're losing. You're wasting your life in a bottle. And you can be free. So, you know, let, let's stand and, and as we think about a risen Savior, I'm going to close with a final song. And well, Don't turn me off yet. I, sometimes I step down. Don't turn me off yet. I'm not done yet. Uh, for a long time in this fellowship, I have had a sense, not just in this fellowship, all over the county, that the Spirit of God is desiring to do a mighty work. And I don't just say that because I'm a preacher, okay? I, I don't say this very often. This is something for years. You know, I can remember when we'd play music, and this congregation was afraid to even clap. Afraid to outwardly be, hey, worship the Lord. Hey, we're, we're thankful for God. And I can remember when we were afraid as a congregation to, like, actually lift our hands to the Lord because people... That, that's weird, you know, or maybe you're not used to that. And for a long time, there has been a fear among and in this place for the unsaved to come down and take a stand for Christ. And I know week after week, I, I offer, say, hey, come and know the Lord, come and know the Lord, come and know the Lord. And I know that there is just, there is a blockage. And I don't know why, I don't know when the Lord will lift that, but there's just something hindering. And I don't, I don't understand that. I'm not saying I have the, the key to that. All I know is it's the Spirit of God that has to work to break through that. And it can be in, in someone's heart right here. Because you know God is calling you. And I know that as the tares are growing up, so is the wheat. And that there is a great harvest of souls. And the more crazy the news gets and the more crazy election stuff gets, the more the Spirit of God is going to work in people's lives. I believe. Do you believe that? So just as we close out with this final song, those of you that are saved, just pray. Just pray that the Spirit of God would break through barriers. Pray that the Spirit of God would touch people's hearts uh, and move them uh, to accept Christ as their Savior in these final days. We live in weird times so can we do that and and if it's you if i'm speaking to you and your heart is pounding and your palms are sweating and you're saying i'm so scared i can't i know i need the lord i know this was for me you know grab the person who's sitting next to you even if you don't know them and say please come up with me you know i need someone to i'm I'm nervous i'm scared we are we've all been there amen